Welcome to Life on Mars, a podcast about technology, entrepreneurship, and innovation. You will listen to stories of the best founders, inventors, experts, and celebrities from all around the galaxy. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Life on Mars podcast. This is one of our recording live with, uh, with James Butworth and Josh Felberg. Um, as always, and it's become a tradition right now, even though we have just started this, this podcast, the Mars-based podcast, that we're between friends. Um, we were supposed to talk about technology, innovation, and entrepreneurship, which is the motto of our podcast, but we always end up talking with people we respect in the industry, and uh, I think this provides a higher value into our conversation. So for, I don't want to talk for very long here. Uh, I would like to, to hand it over to my good friend, Josh Felberg, I and mean, I've known Josh for quite a while now, five years, too long, right, Josh? But uh, <laughs> um, I met him through mutual contacts in the startup industry, and uh, we ended up being friends. We collaborated in a couple of projects, actually working on a, on a, on a joint project right now. Um, maybe you will be able to give more details in the next podcast when, when I will be interviewing you. Uh, we did a project three years back, and then we've collaborated uh, you know, back and forth between Marsbase, startup and his own Ventures companies has been working for, and Josh wants to introduce our guest for tonight. So yeah, so uh, so yeah, this is a uh, this is James, a uh, friend of mine from back in the UK. We've known each other for quite a while through British politics. Uh, James used to uh, well, from when I knew, he began his career editing the uh, very influential sort of centre left uh, blog called Left Foot Forward. Um, he's written for a number of Sort of UK national publications, um, and I think more recent. Well, and he's written two books. I think it is James. Correct me. So he's written. Yeah, written that's correct. Three, and then uh, hired the most recent one, and you're about to write another one. Uh, James, perhaps best known for being the guy who went undercover at Amazon um, and ended up doing a campaign with Bernie Sanders, and actually managed to, I think, get legislation changed or certainly played his part in a role around workers' rights. Um, but you didn't just work at Amazon, you actually went undercover. And more impressively than anything, I thought was you actually lived off the money that you were getting paid. So you, you lived and breathed that world for six months and reading your book, it's, it's more than just about the work itself. It's just everything, the atmosphere, and just, just I was in the whole sort of depression around it, really, isn't it? Not, <laughs> not, 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 just, the, not just the sort of uh, horrific hours. So... Yeah, I, and, and I think that, yeah, your book, your book made, made quite a splash. So everyone knows or certainly knew that a lot of people were exploited, but, the, you know, journalists normally sort of hear about it, you know, third-hand at best, if you like. So I think you sort of had quite an impact on a lot of people on that. So, yeah. So I'll hand over to, to, to Alex and James and uh, both of you, if you want to make, maybe get started. And, I, and I'll chip in with some stuff here and there. But um, one thing I, I was interested, actually, throw a game back, maybe, Maybe it'll be interesting, James. So they think this often comes up. Um, your own actual beginnings I find really interesting because you don't come from a wealthy background at all. I mean, you're from the middle of Somerset. Um, you funded, from what I remember, your master's degree by being a postman, which is pretty rare and certainly rare in the UK journalism, your journalistic world or a media bubble where you know a vast majority of people go to private private school, whereas actually in reality, I think it's seven percent of the nation. So it's massively not representative of the reality of sort of people whose lives are meant to be writing about and influencing. So I think hearing about your own background first actually be really fascinating because I think you you often leave it out when you speak about your own experiences, and I think that's really important actually, and I think gives a bit of context to what you do. Yeah, for sure. Um, so yeah, like ten years ago, um, I was thinking of, about this recently. Like ten years ago, I was a postman. I was working for the Royal Mail um back in nottingham this was um and prior to that i mean i didn't go to university until i was 23 um and prior to that i was just working um i did kind of jobs similar to the jobs that appear in hired uh, so i i worked as a i worked in a in a, a yogurt factory um i got a job as a bus driver uh i worked in like did bar work worked in a petrol station kinds of like all kinds of odd jobs and it was it was partly um no one in my family had been to university before, so it was um, it was kind of outside my reality until later that, that that someone from my kind of background could go to university. Essentially, um, I don't. It's not something I talk about a great deal because 
not not because it's like I'm ashamed of it or anything like that. It's more because uh, nowadays with like identity politics, there's a lot of uh, a lot of people do this kind of thing, like prolier than thou, I call it, where they will kind of um, burnish their working class credentials uh, as if that's this huge, you know, as if as if they should be given some kind of handicap or whatever because of this. Whereas to me, that's a very middle class thing to do. That kind of um, that approach. I mean, I was always someone who uh, had a lot of pride in like where I came came from and stuff. And you know, I, I never felt ashamed about where I came from. And so, you know, it, it, while it was, I think there were there were more obstacles for someone from my background to actually get into journalism stuff. I did. I never felt like um, I wanted other people to give me some handicap because of that. That I wanted some like special treatment or anything like this. I think um, I, de- I do feel, feel on the one hand that I had to work harder, but um, on the other, I never wanted to be patronized with, uh, you know, oh, isn't it good that there's this working class boy who's done this stuff? I find I, I dislike that. I dislike that. So, yeah, it was. A, but 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 my background is yeah. I, I I was I did come from a background similar to to you know doing the jobs that appear in my book hired, and because I'm a journalist now, a lot of people don't they assume that's that i'm you know very middle class or you know i i got a lot of flack for the book like oh why is this post journalist going and uh doing this poverty tourism stuff with uh you know the amazon warehouse um and i think that's because people just assume that journalism is is like a rich kid because a lot of them are a lot of them are actually um one, one of the things i can relate to uh from reading your books is that i also grew up in a pretty humble background and i did some of the jobs that you actually took in the in in the book right and i even remember that before creating my own company i even considered becoming an uber driver because back then it was all the rage and and precisely because i grew up in a family business and i did some some other stuff like freelancing or working a catering company i i sort of endured these kind of companies and i have become a person that can do pretty much everything and i have yeah. no problems with doing uh, let's say I don't know how you call them, like lower income or uh, jobs. Uh, I don't know. I'm not native in English, so that maybe that's not the best way to describe them. But uh, oh, that's fine. Yeah, in in a sense, I think that that has created my own persona around around this, and maybe I have I feel more attached to what you said to this sense of belonging to working class, right? So, do you think that by doing these jobs and actually, or also not going to university right away from from middle school? Did that shape also the kind of person that you are right now and the kind of things you stand for? Um, yeah, I mean, I think it does. Uh, on the one hand, it makes you more resilient in some ways because, well, in two ways. So on the one hand, it makes you more resilient because if, some, if, if say, like, journalism went, like, if that all, like, fell to, like, ashes, like if, that all, if that all turned to ashes or whatever, um, I wouldn't, you know, I could go back to being a postman or something and it wouldn't be, like, it wouldn't be ideal like i wouldn't like I, I i prefer what i do now but i you know it'd be fine i'd be able to survive doing that it wouldn't be like the end of the world um but I, and i also think it gives you a more yeah it gives you a better perspective on uh what you know what working class life is actually like a, a more realistic picture of it a lot of especially in like left-wing politics a lot of it is very um like academic and like ivory tower and uh, these kind of highfalutin ideas of what working class people are actually like. Whereas if you've been in that environment, you, that environment or around those environments for like a prolonged period of time, you have a more like nuanced picture of, you know, you're less inclined to like romanticize certain groups in society. Um, it's more, you have a more, you know, balanced view of people as human beings. So you're not taking on the one hand, you're not demonizing people, but you're also not kind of um, uh, having this kind of, very romantic view of, of the working class, for example. Yeah, because one of the things that I, I get a lot, and by, by being, we're a company, as I said, we're a company that we're highly opinionated and we're pretty, let's say, public in our politics views and uh, political views on, on our Twitters, for instance. And a lot of people would, you know, they, they would perceive that it's something that would backfire at us, right? On the contrary, I think we have created sort of a platform where we can speak up for other people who can actually not do it, right? So um, it, it's sort of shocking that business owners might be more leaning towards the, the, the left side of the political spectrum just because 
pretty much always a business owner or a person of wealth or high political power have been leaning towards the right. And therefore, they have shaped the game and the rules of the industry, right? So do you think there's any chance of this new breed of business owners actually taking over, maybe <coughs> changing a little bit the industry, or we have no, we, we have no, no future? Um, I, think it's, um, I think that did start to happen in, not start to happen, but it was more, uh, it was more like domin that kind of business culture was more dominant or started to become more dominant in the 90s and uh, 2000s. Uh, where there was this uh, more of an emphasis on like eth ethical capitalism, and uh, it was you know it was it was even from a self-interested point of view. So so business owners would would recognise that if you treat staff well, they tend to be more productive. Uh, you'd see kind of uh, companies putting like gyms and stuff into their offices and things like this because it's you know keep the staff happy, etc. But I think the rise of one of the things I feel like I I kind of hadn't really noticed quite so much until I did the book was uh, companies, the biggest companies like Amazon uh, or the most influential companies like Amazon, uh, Uber, because those companies don't really take that approach, they've gone back to an older model of uh, it's all about productivity and squeezing as much productivity out of workers as possible with a big stick, basically. Um, because they've gone back to that and because nowadays a lot of entrepreneurs look to companies like Amazon and people like Jeff Bezos to, to, to try and emulate those people. I think the culture has moved back towards this idea of profit at all costs, profit at any cost. Um, I think that is a problem. You've obviously got, it's obviously more nuanced. You have uh, you know, business owners who want to want to run things ethically, of course, and uh, want to do right by their staff and, and contribute something to the world. Um, but I think there's, there is this kind of dominant business culture again of, uh this like around the gig economy around like amazon and companies like this of you simply squeeze as much money out, out of the workforce as you can i think that's a problem and that's something that needs to be addressed or tackled because i've been reading a lot of books about these lately and uh, i remember that you know some companies really changed the industry and for instance hp is a company that's often respected as a company that treats well their employees um and uh, they, they, they didn't believe that much into that squeezing uh, every single drop of their, of their employees, right? But some other companies, they just, they see it from another point of view, maybe an external point of view. They say, oh, we need to emulate them in certain things, but not in the others. So they don't take the, the whole package, right? They, it's the same thing with, with Amazon, I, I take it. But actually, one of the things I want to say is like companies, once they hit a certain stage, they try to bring in, like, the, the, let's put it the other way around, at the beginning of startups, maybe. We have got more generalists, people who can, can sort of endure any kind, any and every kind of job just because you need to get shit done. And it's the early stage of the company. You need to discover your customers, your market, whatever. But once you hit the, the key of scale, then you need to bring in more specialized people. And oftentimes, these specialized people, more business savvy, they come from business schools. Therefore, we are perpetuating that, that systemic problem of bringing more business-oriented people, not so much people-oriented people, right? So is that something that you see that could help to explain the current landscape in the tech sector? Yeah, I mean, I can see that. Uh, I can see that. Uh, I could see how that could happen. Yeah, because there's, I guess that's an uh, issue of kind of credentialism and like specialization. Specialization. So you've got people going into, I mean, my journalism school, when I, where I did my master's in London, there was a, There was the journalism school, but then there was a business school as well. It was Cass Business School in London, like attached to it. Mm -hmm. And you had, um, yeah, I mean, the, a lot of the people who went to there, it was, it was, they were just studying business. It wasn't any specific uh, passion for one specific like, idea or or any area. It was, it was the idea of business, which was um, interesting. It was, it was kind of separated from ethics in a way. So it was separated from. Not that you couldn't be ethical, obviously, but it, it but it's it was business, yeah, like a, almost like a Machiavellian study of business um, practice, rather than you know looking at one area and being like, I want to make this uh, make this product. It was it was this overall concept of business. Do you think, uh, so, James? Say so it's interesting because you're talking about it's something people emulate, and you've been talking about how you're. We spoke earlier before. We think we start recording about your new book, which is coming out, which we can talk about a bit later sort of about movements of masculinity and all the rest of it. Do you think, I don't know, 
how familiar you are with it, but certainly in the sort of tech entrepreneurial world, the, the sort of role models are indeed like the, the Jeff Bezos, the Mark Zuckerbergs and the, God hates his name, the Gary Vaynerchuks, you know, let, let's go and crush it sort of thing. And, and, then, and it hustle. is just about, yeah, it's just like hustle, hustle. like, you know, hustle, hustle porn, right? Like, yeah. I get up at yeah. five in the morning, I go to the gym like before. And obviously these guys don't go to the gym. Like if you see any of them, they clearly have never been to the gym. But it's just this idea of like sharing off about how much money you've made and how hard you've worked. Um, my dad always used to say to me, look, man, like miners worked really hard. They weren't rich. You've got to be smart too if you actually want to make it or like learn a proper skill. But anyway, I just the reason I say that is because I think it, there is this whole sort of masculinity around it. And I'm a member of sort of, Facebook groups around entrepreneurship because some of them are really useful and there's genuinely sometimes interesting people, but it's totally devoid of ethics. Like absolutely, and it is just all like our crushing it. You know that that's the sort of attitude, and you know failure is a really good thing. And let's all go to Bali and start a drop shipping company. Not think about the people who are making the products. Not think about your customers. Just see how much money you can make in as little time as possible. Um, and I was wondering, sort of, do you see an overlap with that in sort of young? Uh, you know young masculinity to a certain extent i was wondering if that's a, a crossover that you're, you've sort of been familiar with and the reason i say that partly because there aren't many female role models at all it's definitely more uh sort of why i would say most upper class sort of people have made it and you know, mark zuckerberg went to harvard Gary vaynerchuk invented this sorry uh, inherited a huge wine business you know these people have not you know they're not self-made the idea that they are is absolute nonsense yeah i mean that it reminds me a bit of um there's a quote by by John Steinbeck, which is um, the the reason I think it was John Steinbeck. It's the reason socialism never took off in America is because uh, all Americans believe themselves to be temporarily embarrassed millionaires. And yeah. it reminds me. It reminds me of the. Uh, so yeah, you you see a lot of this like hustle porn. So is it Gary V? The guy. Yeah, Gary, Gary V. Yeah. And uh, these people, and you know, back in back in the day, it was someone like Tony Robbins. Um, yeah, it's exactly that. He's still, still going doing. strong, though, unfortunately. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and it's but even but but it's got progressively like more crass and more shallow. Yeah. I think Cause as much as like it's funny to like mock Tony Robbins, there is there is like some of it's not all terrible. There is a, some things useful in those things like motivational stuff. It's not it's not all completely to be like written off. But I think a lot of the I think a lot of the newer stuff. Uh, so you you mentioned it's very people who often started off in quite a privileged position uh putting out content that's that's consumed by typically working class people who want to become entrepreneurs and it's 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 almost like a it's you know it's a branch of the self-help movement it's very it, it sees change as very individualistic it, it's it's uh, so i i follow some of these people just for for like research and humor purposes and it's it's, it's highly individualistic it's like um i saw someone post some hustle meme the other day um about you know you can't you know it's basically a waste of time trying to change the world you should just you should just do you focus on on the self and do your own thing yeah um like turn yourself into a, a product almost like within uh, within the like capitalist system but it, it's very like uh individualistic and i met i was in vegas for three months last year and you meet lots of people um like who from like promoters and stuff and they do that job on the basis that doing that job they get to hang around with lots of like network with with very some very wealthy people and they 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 kid themselves that the kind of stardust of that will kind of rub off on them and i think that's that's also true of some of this like instagram self-help stuff people think you know if, if they if they you know buy the product like gary v or these whoever these these other people um i've forgotten some of their names but if they buy these products for them and and uh imbibe these kind of uh platitudes slogans about um you know was it um circumstances don't make make a man they reveal him like all these kind of old it's school just, it's weird overlap, slogans, it? there's this weird overlap between sort of entrepreneurship and self-help and masculinity it's really weird like there is yeah seems... there is there's a huge overlap yeah but i think it's um it's like there is a kind of idea of masculinity attached to productivity which is kind of old and that came up in hired so you have one of the reasons one of the things in south wales where i was for a chapter of the book i went i went and worked in a call center in in south wales coalfield what used to be the coalfield and one of the big issues around 
the loss of like industry is you have a lot of men who don't really know what their identity is anymore, what their place in the world is, because their identity previously was attached to being productive, like a productive member of the community. Um, but it was very collaborative also, which is very different from the newer stuff. And I think a lot of the entrepreneurial stuff is you've got, you haven't got that industry anymore that gives someone a sense of like collective identity or whatever as a, as a man. What does it mean to be a man? Produce, you take, you put food on the table for your family or whatever. And I think the, the, the new entrepreneurial stuff taps into some of that for younger working class, typically men, but it, it catches it in a very like competitive framework rather than a collaborative framework. Mm -hmm. So it's very much like you've got a, the way to succeed and get status is to like crush someone else under your, under your boot, basically. Um, it's very also like because the miners and coals, they are, are traditionally in this uh, in this kind of industry. There's been more history of unions, whereas in entrepreneurship yeah. that doesn't exist, right? So there's no sense of collective, no. and everybody is much more of an individualist, right? Sorry, well, I cut well, you your, off. Your success is built on someone else's failure, essentially. A lot of the modern entrepreneurialism. Yeah, and it's it's very it's like masters of the universe that that stuff from the like 1980s, like slightly that like rehashed. Um, but it's but it's it's like that on steroids, and I think that is because it's more unrealistic today. I think there's um, like capitalism is not in the West is not doing particularly well. I mean, it's before COVID. It's like wages for middle income and low income people have been stagnating in in America for for like 30 years or something. In the UK, it's when wages are now had now just got back to the point they were in they were were in 2007, like the average wage and that was pre COVID. And now we've got a 25% recession or whatever it's going to be. Um, so it's, I mean, if you're, if you're born into uh, like the working class today, it's, it's, it's in some ways it's much harder to escape. And so the, the propaganda, I guess, is, the, is for want of a better term, that kind of hustle porn propaganda stuff is much more, uh, it's much stronger. It's, it's much more, you know, it's, it's much more potent. So it's, it's, it's more like ram down your throat because, Otherwise, the system kind of collapses. And how about, how about the language part of it? Because we've been touching on this, the sort of the message, the attitude, whatnot. But you're a journalist, uh, therefore you're a wordsmith. And so how much part of the problem is the language that you're using here? Because think of it, in the business industry, usually you use militaristic um, language and, and, and verbs. We need to conquer markets. You need to tap these, rally the troops whatever, right? It's always very, very militaristic, very aggressive. And we're always talking about the competition, aggression being there first and, and whatnot. And I wonder how much this trespasses, how much uh, goes into, the, into, the, into the, the attitudes or the thinking of the people just because we were using sort of an aggressive, pushy and, uh, and competitive language. You say how much the language comes from where, do you say? Where no, exactly how much the language influences the attitudes, right? How much the language is provoking these kind of aggressive attitudes just because the language itself comes from military. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think the, the, I think the language is a very important like, component of that world. So it's um, like the language around, I remember when I went to uh, my Uber induction day, when I, when I, for the book, I went to, yeah, I I remember went to that Uber hmm. yeah, like four years ago. And they were, there was a lot of sloganeering then. So I remember one of the instructors said something that could have easily been on one of these Instagram uh, hustle porn posts. He, was, he said, you know, if, you're not, if, if your wheels aren't turning, you, you aren't earning. And it's just this like horrible, like, it was age. horrible. It was, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's just, um, there's a lot of this. And it, it's kind of like, it's, it's, it's essentially like capitalist propaganda, I guess. It's um, because I, you know, I lived in Cuba for like a, for like almost a year when I was like, how long ago was this? Over 10 years ago now. I was in, I spent a lot of time in Cuba. I was there on and off for a year doing like a writing project. And you still had, it's a bit less nowadays, but you still had then like a lot of the billboards with the old communist slogans on and stuff. And uh, when I went to Amazon and at Uber, you had like capitalist versions of that. You see that on Instagram today. It, it's kind of, telling people that, you know, keep on working and, and, you know, there is some bright future if you keep on getting up at four o'clock in the morning after like three hours sleep, uh, one day you will, you will become rich. It's always like postponing gratification for the future. Yeah, that's, um, that has something in common with it, I think. And yeah, there is a militarization. Yeah. 
I remember, well, let's talk a little bit of, uh, about Hire, then we'll go into the, into the other book. But basically, in Hire, one of the things uh, you just brought up is this thing in the Amazon warehouses where the conditions are terrible. And some people were forced to pee in a plastic bottles just because they didn't make it in time for their breaks. And they, all of them, they were accounted. And, and I was, you know, I was, I, I was reading that. I was on the verge of crying because I couldn't believe this was possible in such a well-known company, right? In the first world, allegedly. And so uh, can, can you talk a little bit about what was the motivation of writing this book? Like, why did you um, have this idea? Why did, did you want to get into trouble? <laughs> yeah, well, well, what mean, was it about pissing in bottles that first attracted you to work yeah. for Amazon? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, so I only uh, ended up working at Amazon by accident. That was, um, that was pure. It was, um, the book idea was basically uh the, the the idea was to go back to jobs i'd finished 10 years before and now i could write about it because i i was a better writer obviously than 10 years before so it was like go back to those jobs and write about it. uh tell like stories i wish i'd have been able to tell when i was doing those jobs when i was younger but also um in 2015 there was like a big rise in like zero hours contract and uh, the gig economy and uber had recently come on the scene and stuff and, so, and no one had really written about it in that way. There was there was some dry pieces, like dry books, uh, you know, where it's all polemical stuff. But I wanted to do something which was like a piece of journal, like journalism. And the other, the last reason was because, like you know, growing up, I always admired like George Orwell and Jack London, people who've done books like that. So it was I wanted to do something like that. I wanted to rip them off, essentially. Because <laughs> essentially. Yeah. <laughs> it seems like you you had an idea, and then as you got into the into the actual experience, then it turned into another idea of a book, right? That that is kind of like related to one of the books I read recently that is uh, disrupted. There's a similar concept where these uh, 50 plus year old journalist gets booted from a from a from a newspaper, and he tries to reinvent himself by working for HubSpot, which was one of the coolest companies in the planet back like seven years ago. But the original idea of the book was, oh, I'm going to write a, a fun book of an old guy joining a company of 20-year-olds, right? And it ended up uncovering practices like the ones you talk about in your book. And it turns out HubSpot is a shithole as well, right? So they got these terrible ethics and, 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 and you know, this super toxic culture. And so the book ended up being something denouncing this kind of practices in the tech industry. So I was curious of how do you deal with this? From having an initial idea, then as, as long as you, you know, in the moment that you're living this, it's like, oh, I, maybe I need to shift the original idea from, from my book. Did, did that really happen to that extent? Yeah, I mean, that, that was definitely part of the process. Um, so I, I was looking, I was, I intended, yeah, to spend six months away, basically writing this, this book on the, the economy, the low wage economy. And then I got a job at Amazon. That was the first. I threw this employment agency. I just saw this job and then got it, went for the induction. And then I was, yeah, I mean, the main concern when I started off um, with the book was when I, when I first started my first day at Amazon, I was, it was, it was, I was kind of worried that it was going to be quite boring. Like what, what's going to, because I worked in, yeah, factory environments before and it was a case of, you know, what if it's just really dull and there's nothing really to say. Um, and the book might have turned out as just a kind of book about living on that money, living on the low wage, like an economic book. But then, uh, yeah, I mean, after just one day in the warehouse, the book kind of started to write itself because I'd start to see all these things happening that I was just like, whoa, like no one knows about this, really. Like there'd been a few exposés, but it wasn't really, there was lots of stuff where it was like, I, I didn't really feel like people really knew what was going on in this in this company everyone's relying on this company to get their worst shit delivered but no one really knows what the story is and then also the book changed because i was spending time in all of these different locations and i felt like you couldn't really tell the story of the biggest employer in some of these towns without without telling the story of the town itself it wouldn't really make sense you have like you you have to contextualize it within the local community so look you've got this amazon warehouse with all these like bad jobs uh, how has that affected the local community? Um, because that's where it is. It's in a real place. It's not just like um, this abstract, you know, factory in the middle of nowhere. It's in this real town, and it, it's, it has an impact on 
the types of jobs it's created there it has an impact on the whole community so so yeah then the book became half about the working practices the money living on that money but then the other half of the book became about uh like a, a historical sociological account of the of the time uh, within which these companies were, were were set it seems to me that these companies i don't know it's not only about the gig economy we'll talk about the gig economy perhaps in the next question but it seems to me like these big con uh, companies or industries just go to certain small towns just because there's a big profit to be made there the mining industry the coal industry was a really good example you said you you, you went to wales in a town that traditionally had lived off uh, mining and coal. Uh, but once this was depleted, what, once it was exhausted, then they moved off and they left the people there with all the people who used to be rich. Now they had no jobs and they were living in poverty because they, they, they got used to so much abundance and so much like wealth when the market was thriving. But once the, this industry kind of like moved off, they were locked there, right? And so it seems to me that Amazon is actually doing the same shit because they're opening warehouses where it's cheaper where they get tax incentives they even got i remember that story of amazon like put, setting up like a bidding process in the u.s to establish one of their headquarters right or like i think it was the the third biggest office and they were like okay i'm amazon i'm willing to open an office i'll let all these states bid for this and wherever i get the most incentives or it seems that it's most most profitable for me i'll go there but they actually don't care about the people there right so it seems to me there's parallelisms between these the the industries and the new, new company that they are perpetuating these this systemic problems they're actually not working on them so if the big company big tech industries that you know they are committed to changing the world making event in the universe and all that they are actually not changing a thing so if, they, if it's not them who's going to do this change Yeah, I mean, so Amazon in uh, South Wales, where I where I was working for the call center, yeah, former industrial area, used to be lots of coal mining, steelworks, this kind of stuff. Um, there was Amazon there had been incentivized by the local authority to come and and come to this area. So so the local authority had uh, built this special road for them, like spent millions of pounds on this this special road because the lorries of Amazon carry so are so heavy. They have to have special like roads, uh, special tarmac. Um, and then the local authority also fund paid for the construction of the warehouse itself. Um, oh, wow. And the reason, and this is in one of the poor, this is one of the poorest local authorities in the, in the country as well doing this. Um, because they're, you know, paid for the biggest multinational in the world to come there, headed by the richest man in the world, the world's first trillionaire. Uh, although he wasn't at the time, but he was still, you know, a billionaire. Uh, the, one of the poorest local authorities in Britain paid for his warehouse and for the road leading up to the uh, warehouse um, because they're desperate for jobs. Because since the coal mines closed in the late 80s and early 90s, nothing has um, has replaced them. And you can't expect, you know, because coal became, because throughout the 80s, coal became, you know, it's it's the economics of coal weren't as good when you had coal being mass produced in China, for example, the price of it on the, on the world market just like, plummeted uh so so coal mining in the uk was not viable really anymore but then you can't like realistically expect people living in those areas to evacuate those areas simply because the price of coal on the world market has changed is is you know that's not how people like li people live in communities and you can't expect them to evacuate those communities based on market fluctuations or whatever um and so yeah you have this situation where those people have basically been Yeah, I would say like exploited by a company like Amazon, which knows they're desperate for jobs. And so so basically sets in train this bidding process where local authorities uh, are kind of racing to the bottom to, to try and sweeten, to try and incentivize Amazon to come to their areas and actually spending money on it, paying a company like Amazon, which then arrives and the jobs they create are, you know, they, to be fair, you know, they'll create, they'll create a certain number of like managerial roles like a handful of managerial roles, which pay reasonably well. And you know, if you're a manager at Amazon, I don't think it's that bad. Probably okay. Like, but it's not that many jobs. It's not. The 2,000 jobs in the warehouse are predominantly done by people doing what I did in the Amazon warehouse. And it's typically uh, Eastern European migrants. So the local people aren't doing the jobs in the first place. Eastern European migrants um, who are then being exploited by the company, partly more so because 
they don't understand the laws in the country. So you had the warehouse I worked in, it was predominantly Romanian workers who it felt to me as if the company got away with more because those people didn't necessarily know what all their rights were. So, you know, Amazon punished you for having a sick day. And and perhaps I knew, because I they come from a from a like a, let's say a less um, developed. I don't know. That's not the word, perhaps. But like yeah, they, they, it is less developed. Yeah, yeah, it's it less, less developed. developed. Country. They, developed yeah. yeah, they have fled their country and they're willing to take jobs that no one in this country they're willing to take. We're seeing the case here and with the delivery or, or these last mile shipping companies, uh, kind of like Deliveroo or Globo in Spain. That I, I don't know what percentage it is, but it's really high. I would say something like around like 80% of the of the riders of the couriers they are they're immigrants which they are not uh, they don't have the paperwork or they, they don't have the papers to stay over here some of them the other ones are like yeah whatever this is the only job i can get i will get it even though the conditions are terrible right so um that's yeah. that's i think that's part of the problem sorry i cut you off no no that's um that's it i mean it's 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 relative in the sense that um You've got someone who who same with with like fruit picking, for example. So so in this in the UK, the fruit picking industry relies on a lot of people from Eastern Europe. And yeah, that's like from I don't, I I wouldn't want to make the argument that like that shouldn't they shouldn't come to this country because I'm I'm in favor of you know immigration. It's not I think it's broadly a good thing, and free movement is like broadly a good thing. But you also have to be careful that people people who are coming from poor countries aren't taken advantage of because they are from a poor country. So the fact that someone coming from Romania, say, is more desperate for money than someone coming from, say, uh, I don't know, Somerset, like me, there, there is a distinction there. And so it might be easier to get the person from Romania to do things that the person from Somerset won't do for less money. And look, uh, someone in the Uber drivers said I interviewed said to me, he said, look, if, if we went down to like East London, we could find someone who would, who would work for like, you know, two pound an hour or whatever. Um, you could find some, some migrant like Bangladeshi or something, I think he said, who, uh, he was himself an, a migrant from, from Eritrea. He said, oh, we could find someone that would work for two pound an hour. But that's why you have laws in place because there's always someone desperate enough to be exploited in that way. Um, so that's why, um, I think sometimes there are instances of like migrant labor being exploited by these companies to take advantage of because they're coming from a background which is uh, there's more desperation there. Basically, when these happen, I, I have the feeling that you, you're exactly right. They are people who are willing to. They are not lowering their standards because the standards in perhaps their origin countries are lower than ours, and per, and and that's why here they can accept these jobs that we wouldn't feel that they are acceptable, right? Um, but the feeling is that the law should be adapting to this. And I, I'm, I'm not saying the law should be created like uh, the first month something like this emerges because it wouldn't be practical, right? But the geek economy, kind of like it's been around for ages now, like seven years, eight years, maybe 10, I don't know. And it seems like this hasn't been regulated. This, this is really fucking slow. So um, I don't know what the solution to this is. But one of the other things I wanted to talk about, and this is a question that goes for the both of you, because uh, you're a journalist and, and Josh has been working in the PR industry for a long time, is that, first of all, you, James, did, did you get in trouble with any of these companies as part of their PR policy or whatever? And, and the second part of the question is, how much do you think books like this or campaigns like this affect the big companies, if at all? Um, I, I mean, I didn't get in trouble, per se, because because everything's true in the book for a start so they couldn't um did you yeah, have to sign an nda or something like an non-disclosure agreement or something like that but... no i managed to avoid it so so amazon i i managed i think to avoid you, you write it in then, the book i think you, you mentioned that in the book yeah i think in, I amazon. in the book like they came and tried to find me after like three three weeks over three weeks and like a couple of days uh they came to try to get me to sign it and then i'd left then like before signing it because in case uh I, I i don't think it would be a problem anyway because i think this public interest defense is is would stand up against you know i'm, I'm bringing stuff that's in the public interest about stuff that's going on there um so i don't think it would i'd really get in trouble but however they did amazon did sue me around uh television and radio studios and stuff uh trying to like besmirch 
tarnish my good name, um, my good journalistic name, and say that I was uh, just sensationalising and this kind of thing. Did they do that via their PR agencies releasing statements, or how, how did that work? Yeah, that's it. That, that's exactly it. So everywhere I'd go, there'd be a statement that had already arrived. <laughs> yeah, there'd be a statement that had already arrived. So what, what was the best one they said about you then? Well, they got progressively worse. So there was there was um, there was a few where it was um, saying I was like I set out deliberately to sensationalize uh, the stuff. That I saw at Amazon, which was just not true at all. It's um, I I didn't think I even wrote the book in a sensationalist way. It's very like straightforward. It's um, it's not like a polemical book or anything like this. It's very straightforward. Um, so but yeah, I mean that they're, they're kind of bound to do that. Um, but there was nothing. There was no kind of factual. There was nothing factual that they could pull me up on and you know take me to court over because it's all everything in the book is true. Because you, you also had these tech talks, I remember, uh, why the, the gig yeah. economy is a fraud and, and all of that. So maybe, I don't know, I'm, I'm, I, that's why I was asking whether these, these poses a threat to a giant like Amazon or they are unmoved, uh, just part of their daily routine because they get so many bad reputation, uh, so many messages like that. I don't know. Um, well, like, on the one hand, it's, On the one hand, I, I did think, oh, they won't care because they're such a big company. Like, yeah. We're the biggest multinational in the world. But then in 2018, I did uh, some campaign stuff with Bernie Sanders uh, that was mentioned before. Mm -hmm. um, we made like a series of, of videos uh, about Amazon. Did, James, Please. sorry, just to go back a step. How did that even come about? That's amazing. That's, that's quite bizarre. Yeah. It's, uh, also, it doesn't happen I mean, to everyone. did it in the UK as well. And you seem to have made more of a splash in the US than in the UK. <laughs> so how, what, what was the lead up to? I was finding those, sort of the backstory is almost more interesting than, than, than sort of what actually then happened. No, I mean, the, the backstory is not that interesting. It's like they got a hold of the book. Yeah. <laughs> Bernie Sanders' team had got a hold of the book and, uh, and seen me on American TV and then got a hold of the book. Yeah. And then, um, um, then, yeah, we did like a series. They would, it did Bernie with just them. call you up on, on your mobile and be like, hey, James, do you want to uh, make, do you want to do a video? <laughs> No, it wasn't. It was nothing that like that that good a story, basically. But it was like they they'd seen me on American TV. They got hold of the book, and then they re they reached out as 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 you, as they say they reached out, and then it coincided. My book coming out in America coincided with their, this campaign they were doing about Amazon at the time. So it was oh, it was perfect right. timing. And then yeah, we made these videos, and then what else happened? Um, And then the GMB union in the UK started like kicking off about Amazon. I was working with these different places and like did some news stories as well. Um, with with um, so I gave an interview to like a Newswire thing, where where the thing about the I mentioned like offhand of, of the part of the book, like one sentence in the book about the urinated Coke bottle. Um, this this is kind of funny. So yeah, I I hadn't really mentioned it in any interviews. Or whatever, it's like a single line in the book. I, I should have made more of it, but I just it didn't like it off. Because when I heard that, that's not what I remember from the book, bizarrely. Yeah, I mean, it's in the book, but it's like, um, it's like a line, basically. I, I found like a, a Coke bottle half-filled with urine one day. And um, yeah, to me, it was just like, it wasn't that much of a surprise because all the stuff that was going on there, it was really hard to take a bathroom break. It was just like, well, yeah, that's obvious. That would happen. But then I said this to a Newswire interview. And then it got picked up and became like a meme as well. So it was, I would go on Reddit and there's like, one day I went on Reddit and the top meme is like about like people pissing in Coke bottles at Amazon. It's just like, all right. And then, um, yes, and it was mentioned in like the, in like, like um, the Senate at some point as well about this, this, that urine in the bottle. And it kind of uh, the, took off a bit. And then I did the videos with Sanders and then the GMB union was doing a lot of stuff in the UK. And then, Amazon started putting out publicity uh, by, like Jeff Bezos gave a load of money to like some philanthropic uh, cause, and then they raised the wages for UK and US warehouse workers to ten dollars an hour, like they caved in basically um, because there was this deluge of bad publicity. And it's not just from like I wouldn't say it's like just comes just from my book. There was like a a multi like faceted approach, a multi a multi like pronged like attack on Amazon. Yeah, based from me, from like Bernie Sanders' campaign, from the GMB union, and that that pressure did result in Amazon 
changing its ways to some extent or at least like ameliorating what it was doing and uh making concessions so it, i mean it yeah it did actually it was like a campaign in the end and it did actually have, have it, some yeah achievements. You, you didn't set out because i've sort of seen your earlier actually talks when you first did the book and people say oh well i remember people saying to you well what should be done you said well look, i'm just a journalist i'm just writing about what's happened so it's kind of ironic that you've sort of started a campaign which resulted in something when it was not your intention at all <laughs> yeah i mean partly though i just said that because i didn't want to write a uh so i wanted the book just to be like a journalism account i didn't want it to be like um a, a polemical book with like a thing on the end with like this is what we need to do it's just i get a bit i don't know like it's those things always get really dated very quickly as well because if i'd done that it would the book would already feel very dated the things i would have been talking about in policy wise either some of them might have happened or on the other hand um they might just not be relevant in in 2020 like even just four years later so i i didn't i wanted it to be like a journalistic account of something and then it's it's like i don't really feel like it's always the job of journalists to be like armchair uh like armchair politicians on this stuff it's like i've done i've done the hard work of doing the doing the book and going out and spending six months like living it then it's like surely it's up to like policy you want whatever to actually like come up formulate the like policy it's like it's a bit much i think to expect journalists to do that as well like i'm a writer i'm a journalist i'm not like a policy head um like they can do that stuff i'm just giving like the real like a truthful picture of, of the stuff i saw and then like giving that on to, to to them but then the bernie i like bernie sanders so it was um i, I was happy to do that yeah i want when just real quick josh uh, from your perspective like what is the best angle to try to because it seems like james did it not unconsciously but it was not his idea to sort of attack amazon right he was just saying what there was but you guys working in the pr industry sometimes you work against a certain company because they've been doing like bad policies bad actions or they're you know kind of like facebook lately right or twitter right so what's the best angle to sort of denounce this kind of pra uh, practices and to come out victorious because the giants in the tech industry can crush you if you're a, an independent journalist or a small firm but well, what's the best angle what should you be covered against or would you yeah you know, i mean well, I mean, I'd, I'd say I work in campaigning more than PR, although PR is a form of campaigning, but it has a negative connotation. Um, it, it's a good question. I mean, if you take what's happened recently, so in the since, since, since around sort of Thursday afternoon, over 90 businesses have pulled their advertising right. for a month to six months from Facebook. Seven um, billion or something like that, I read. Seven billion yeah, worth so the of price has dropped about 10%. Yeah. over the last few days so yeah something like seven bit i mean like numbers that you know i don't even know all i know is the american billion is different to the uk billion and know, it's just yeah. numbers i will never understand um <laughs> the, you know the reality is facebook had a reputation type issue around Cambridge Analytica scandal that also actually led to a drop in share price but it re recovered relatively quickly um i think at the moment we are at the point where you know, whether it's Amazon or Facebook, the us consumers, whether that's businesses or just, you know, people buying consumer products, we, I think they almost know that we, that we, and I don't just mean me, you know, as a society, we rely on them way more than, than you know, they, they, they realize we rely on them more than we perhaps we think we do. So I don't quite know what the answer is. I think certainly human stories are important. Stories of uh, sort of talking about individual cases, I think it's really important. Like, as James seen the, the one, you know, the one case that, you know, there's a couple of, sort of cases out for me from James's book when he goes into more, you know, more specific details about how one person lives and their experience. Um, or even when James himself talked about, you know, his own weight gain and how he was feeling unhealthy and that, you know, that, that sort of personalization of taking an issue is away from statistics. Um, I, I think it's quite important. Um, but I, d I don't know. I mean, sometimes cultural moments just happen. I mean, if you look at like Black Lives Matter or the Me Too movement, sometimes uh, it, it, lots of things can happen at one point and things culminate. So I don't think there's a specific formula, really, to be honest with you. Um, 
James may have an opinion on this, but I mean, I used to think I knew like a sort of formula, but now, to be honest, I've got no idea. Nothing seems to make a lot of sense. Um, one thing I do think that does make a difference is when you get senior staff in an organisation raising issues, because it becomes harder for them to recruit. And actually, a lot of these businesses are built, built on mines. You know, Facebook relies on the world's best engineers. If the world's best engineers don't want to go and work for them, they're basically a bit screwed. Um, and, that, and that's the same for a lot of industries. Not all of them, but um, certainly a lot of them. Um, you know, and, and then legislation as well. I think you need to look, not just highlight issues, but highlight how, you know, what legislation needs to change. Um, and then from a kind of, you know, a, a, and then unionise, basically. I, th- I think if you, if you can, I mean, that is James, you know, the GMB union in the UK, I think they tried, or I'm not sure what the states are unionising in, in Amazon, but, you know, there's multiple things. There's sort of workers acting, policy changes, highlighting bad practices. It, it's a combination, uh, in, my, in my opinion, but James and I have um, other views on that. But ultimately, I don't really know. The world doesn't make any sense, and things kind of th- things. You know, things things rise and fall every day. <laughs> James, you might want to have a word on it. Yeah, I mean, I think um, the something Josh t- touched on in terms of like uh, the, the method I used to do the book was the narrative nonfiction. The reason I did that was because, uh, as opposed to like most books on these kind of subjects, it's it's like a either a polemical account uh, or, or a book where you typically get an arg- just an argument. So, so there'll be a premise at the beginning or on the cover mm. of the book and then just layer upon layer of uh, like making like a, almost like a lawyerly case, like make, setting out the argument. Um, whereas, yeah, and a lot of people like, especially in politics, like those books, that, that's what they go for, uh, where it's just this, this, this one argument. But I kind of, because... Yeah, I kind of wanted to reach. I never. I prefer books where there's more of a story. Um, I'm more of a novel reader, I guess. And I like narrative nonfiction because it's 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 in the style of a novel, but um, you're the central character who takes who takes the reader through this journey. Uh, so 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 through the journey of this low pay the low pay economy in my case. So I take a, someone who's maybe middle class who who hasn't experienced that world before. Uh, I create a, like a character in myself, I suppose, who they, whom they identify with. And then I take, I lead them through this world that they've never seen before. And hopefully by the end of the book, they, they empathize with the characters in that world. The, the people I meet in the Amazon warehouse, the Uber drivers in a way that they might, that they may not have done before. And I feel like that's a much more, but as a literary device, as a device for, for persuading people, I feel like that can be more effective than just like plowing someone with, uh, you know, rhetoric or, or whatever. I, I mean, I mean, one of the, the the things that came out of my book that I was happiest with was I'd meet a lot of people who were maybe conservatives or on on the right of the politics, or maybe weren't necessarily uh, sympathetic to, to to my point of view initially. Who then would read the book and come away from from it saying, you know, this is this is like this has really opened my eyes to some of the stuff that's going on at yep. this time. Because I think that's how you bring change. It's persuading people to it's changing people's minds, uh, not just preaching to the converted. No, correct. And that brings me to, to the next topic, which is I wanted to talk as well about the myth of meritocracy, right? You are the book. And maybe the general audience, they will know you for hire. And uh, it's sort of the kind of book that's more I wouldn't call it generalist, but it's more for a greater audience. Whereas the myth of meritocracy looks more like a political essay to me and something for, for more specific. I already knew the systemic problems uh, that you're describing hired. Perhaps not a lot of people did, but I didn't know. I like the book that was an eye-opener for me. It was the myth of meritocracy, right? So can you talk about a little bit of how you came with this idea and uh, what, it, what, you know, what is it about for, for our audience as well? Yeah, so I mean, that was the myth of meritocracy was a book that came. Um, the the idea for that came about based on like my own traje- trajectory from uh, from yes, life in Somerset as someone who left school at six. Well, how old was I? I was yeah, sixteen. I, I finished my GCSEs and I did like a year in sixth form, like doing some mm-hmm. retake. Um, but I basically like dropped out and then was doing a series of of. Menial, fairly menial jo- low-paid jobs and then i went back to college at 19 only because uh because i was 19 i had to pay like 900 pounds 
to go back to college to do my to do A levels. Like if you were if you were over eighteen, you had to pay almost a thousand pounds. And I didn't have the money at the time, but my grandmother paid for me to go back to college. And so it just I, the idea then started germinating later that you know if if I didn't have a relative who who had been able to pay for me to go back through college, um, I'd be in. I'd be in a totally different place today in terms of just that one thing, just that nine hundred pounds, which to some people is just not much money at all. But to me now, it isn't that much money. It's just like, but at the time, it was you know I I had nothing. That would take me you know like a year or two to save up that money, more than more than that probably. Um, so if I didn't have this generous like benefactor, I wouldn't have been. My life would be completely different. So it just set me thinking more about how you know from that. That, from that one thing that germinated a whole set of ideas around how uh, if you're if you're born into like a poor or working class home, there are all these like obstacles layered and layered on top of each other, which make it harder and harder for you to kind of dig your way out uh, and like percolate up into the, into the middle classes and the profession. Um, f- uh, so from you know all the way from from you know when you're when you're a kid and like you uh, when so when when working class kids start primary school at age four or five, they're already like two years behind, three years behind in their reading age than those born into more, you know, affluent families. And I, I kept discovering all these different layers. And it's very interesting. Uh, again, it, it, most people wouldn't really know that there are all these different like layers. They, everyone kind of knows that, you know, oh, if you're born into a working class home, it can be harder for you to, to get on as it were. But, People don't fully grasp the, the the sheer extent of of the of the uh, the kind of things that are against you. In the same way that now we're seeing with with the um, the, the Black Lives Matter protests, you're seeing that a lot of kind of white, typically middle class people are are starting to realise the obstacles that are in front of kind of black people in the West um, in terms of you know on the one hand not being like abused by the by law enforcement but also just in terms of like getting getting your foot in the door of different institutions and that and it's the same it's, it's different but the same for for those born into poor and working class homes there are all these barriers these invisible sometimes that if you're not from that world yourself uh you sometimes don't necessarily comprehend the kind of scale of them and and how difficult it can be to like surmount those barriers some of some of the ways, uh, like I, I, it's not that I knew the problem because I knew it was an underlying, like a thing I had in the background. I had perceived it because I remember when I joined, for instance, when I joined Deloitte, because I had the full. Um, so there were two ways of doing. Like there was a bachelor, and there was, there was five years in my university, but you could do like the short part of it that was like three years only. If you started with the full year, full five years, then you got a higher starting salary. Whereas if you didn't have it, like you started with you know, significantly less money, but then you could only progress to more like management positions if you had the full five years, or you couldn't go into being a team leader or a manager or a partner in the company if you didn't have an MBA, right? So things like that. So I seem to perceive that perhaps these are the things that are hindering people from lower class, lower, lower class backgrounds from progressing progressing into the industry and that is also perpetuating the, this problem right seems that only the, the people born in more advantageous um backgrounds have access to the top layers of society precisely because they're first of all able to afford it and second because they keep perpetuating these rules that perhaps don't make any sense because most of them they were perceived or they were sorry conceived 200 years ago or in the industrial revolution where you know university was founded in a way to have people from wealthy families to sort of access the top layers of society, but working class people were not allowed into university, right? So, but why has this not changed in all these years? In 200 years since that university hasn't changed or the way people progress in the industry hasn't changed. Maybe entrepreneurship was seen as sort of an alternative because there's been famous college dropouts. However, most of them, they came from really uh, wealthy background, or they were just lucky in their one in a million, one in a billion, right? Even if it's an, a European billion or an American billion, but we cannot think that entrepreneurship is an alternative because it's just people who have gotten extremely lucky and the probably, probabilities of being an Elon Musk or, a, uh, or Mark Zuckerberg or Steve Jobs are astronomically small, right? So it's, uh, how, do you, how do you see this? How do you see that we can change the rules of the industry in the, in the sense. 
Um, James. What's that? No pressure. I mean, just change the <laughs> industry in about it, two minutes. It was a long, long question. I know. <laughs> so, I mean, so on the one hand, I think, I think it, one of the reasons it's harder to change some of the institutions and professions is because it's not in everyone's interest for it to change, for one thing. So, so let's say like impediments to getting into professions, a profession like journalism. You've got, on the one hand, you've got like the socioeconomic uh, disadvantage for a working class person. So, in the typical journalism job, you've um, you typically you typically nowadays need to do an entrepreneur um, an internship to get the job, like an unpaid internship. So, so people I went to university with, most of them went off and did like in- yeah. internships at places, newspapers for like up to a year, just a year of work with no pay. And to do that, you obviously, obviously, like a working class person who doesn't live in London can't do that. It's um, it's that's not open to them. And and most of those people who did those internships would go on to get jobs at those papers after, like paying jobs. Um, the internship is like a foot in the door. So you've already got, on the one hand, you've got a, an economic impediment to working class kids getting in. But then you've also got a cultural impediment where, on the one hand, yeah, you it's not in everyone's interest for, it, it, like journalism and politics especially, it's very much, there's like a, it's, it's almost like a, the, the atmosphere of a social club around it as well. So people, especially in the past, people commissioning articles to their friends, um, people, you know, giving safe seats in politics to, to their friends or people from their local, uh, their local like gentlemen's club or whatever. That was certainly how these things often worked in the past. And it's not in their interest to have like usurpers coming up from the working class or whatever, or from ethnic minority groups or, or, or in politics, like in journalism, women sometimes. It's not, it's not in the interest always of the status quo to have new people coming in and shaking that up. It works very well to have these, uh, this one social class to, to dominate journalism, to dominate politics. And um, it's all very like chummy and stuff. I don't know if the business world's exactly the same, but that's, that's one of the impediments to, to opening up the profession. And also in, in like business, you've seen that's one of the impediments to opening up business to like the, the female CEOs, for example. So you've got, um, it's like a boys club, an atmosphere of like a boys club. Women have faced uh, this, this atmosphere of where it's very hard to break in because it's like a, a gentleman's club or something. Not like, no, I don't mean gentleman's club as in like a strip club, but like a um, gentleman's club as in like old school, old school tie where it's um, uh, like a private members gentleman's club. It's like there's, there's like access forbidden to, um, to certain, certain groups almost. All right, gentlemen, I think uh, it's a really interesting conversation. I think we got to wrap it up. We see we're in the one hour mark. I don't know if you want to give one last remark, talk about something we have left uh, that we haven't covered so far. It's your time to speak for both of you. Uh, you should definitely buy my book, Hired Six Months Undercover in Low Wage Britain, if you want to learn about some of the companies you almost certainly use. Is it in a, James, is it in Spanish, by the way, yet? And will it be? Uh, no, but there's an article on it, a big article on it yep. in Spanish, a big interview I did in Spanish. Can you, no, uh, it's, it's you send us the link and then we'll uh, include it in the in the notes section? Yeah, correct. The... Yeah, well. Yeah, of course. Yeah, I can. It's, it's uh, funny because we're be... able to buy it through Amazon, but. <laughs> yeah. Willing, yeah, yeah normally... Destroying the system from within, right? Kind of like Robin Hood. Yeah. <laughs> normally we would do this interview again in Spanish. It's a bilingual podcast. But I think you might struggle a little bit doing it Spanish, so maybe next ne- time. Ne- necesito más práctica. Ah, okay. oh, that's good enough. It's good enough. So it's good enough. It's probably <laughs> right. better than Catalan. So yeah, sure. So yeah, really recommended books. I mean, I I I read them, and I think it was like in three days only, both of them, because okay, uh, cool. I could I couldn't stop, and that's why I recommend it because. Precisely, our audience is, is actually follows this train of thought that our company culture and Mars space, perhaps you know, we're more like ethical working and more like uh, employee well-being and not so crazy about growth or giving profit to investors, whatever. We're highly independent as a company and we try to, to spread these values kind of like in the companies of like Buffer, Ghost or, or Basecamp, which are the, you know, the beacons uh, that we you know, drew, uh, drew all the inspiration from. So uh, thank you very much, uh, George. Thank you very much, James, also for, you know, not only for being here, but also for speaking up and trying to, to bring more light into this, uh, this industry with a, m- more shadows than, than light. So your books felt like a good uh, breeze of, of fresh air. So thank you very much, gentlemen.
And um, we can wrap it up here. We are Mars-based, an all-remote consultancy from Barcelona, specializing in web and mobile development. We help all kinds of companies, from startups to big corporations, to conceptualize, design, and develop solutions for their business using technology. And now, how can we help you? 